to the studio. Um, and look, it's a makeshift podcast studio that we've we've put together and that sort of thing, but I'm unsupervised because Sian has COVID and has to be in isolation. And we've we've tried to get her to jump in uh, through a Zoom link and all sorts of craziness, but it looks like the kids had, uh, had a laptop and have done some things with webcams and all that sort of jazz. So you've got me flying solo uh, so I've invited one of one of my friends on onto the podcast, or our friends, I should say, onto the podcast, who happens to be uh, one of the greatest winemakers ever. And uh, I'll introduce him in a second, and, and I'll talk him. Uh, sorry, give you an, a proper intro to him in a second. But what we're going to be talking about is food and wine pairing, where to start, how to do it, how to go about it. And this is I, I have been wanting to get. Matt on the podcast for some time because he is a, an absolute wine nerd and there is there's no one better that I've ever come across to talk wine with and wine and food pairings with. So uh, I'm going to introduce Matt in a second but first let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Ready to sell your home? Don't make the rookie mistake of jumping in blind. The first step on your journey is critical. Research. You need to know what your house is really worth to get the best deal. And that's where checkmyhouseprice.com.au comes in. With a free house price report, you'll get all the juicy market intel, recent sales data, and other must-have info to help you win big when selling your home. Don't gamble on your home's worth. Make checkmyhouseprice.com.au the first step in your successful selling journey. Visit us today and get your free house price report. Now, quickly before I, I jump in and introduce Matt, um, we don't have a real estate segment today purely because I am flying solo, and so we're, we're going to just jump straight in with the JTM, and this whole episode is going to be one massive JTM on food and wine pairing. Why not? Enjoy. Let's see which rabbit holes we're going down in this episode. So I'm rolling solo today in the JTM because Sian is in isolation in the bedroom um, with COVID. And we've tried to get her in through another laptop and it's just not working. Her webcam is is commandeered by something. Who knows? It's the kid's laptop. So maybe there's a virus or something like that on it. Uh, that'll be fun. But today's JTM is, is something that I'm excited about because personally, I hated wine before I met 
our guest who I'm about to introduce you to. Um, and it's purely that I found that I hated poor quality wine. And uh, our guest today, Matt Wank from Smidge Wines, introduced me to some incredible wines. Now, before I throw to, to Matt and officially welcome him, I need to just highlight, this guy is the best kept secret in Australian winemaking, as far as I'm concerned, but probably even the world. Um, he's worked for two hands. He's built Smidge Wines himself with, with his lovely partner, Trish. Um, but the greatest accolade, and, and I think the greatest thing that highlights just how amazing an Aussie winemaker Matt is, is he is still today the only winemaker in history to have had his wines featured in the top 100 wines in the world list for 10 consecutive years. That's an achievement that as far as I'm aware and as far as anyone I talk to, no one else has ever been able to repeat. Um, And he's done that across multiple brands, across multiple vineyards and so forth. So that just gives you an idea of of the level of skill this man has when it comes to, to making wine. But what's really amazing and, and really, really cool is he's actually just a normal down-to-earth bloke who loves wine. He's a wine nerd, and he explains it in a way that a moron like me can actually understand. So, officially, welcome to the Home Life Podcast, Mr. Matt Wank. Thanks, John. Thanks for the uh, that uh, very lovely introduction. I'm my my pleasure, pleasure mate. You've earned it. 30 years in winemaking. I think you've well and truly earned it. I've probably only <laughs> scraped the, the tip of the iceberg, too. Uh, to, oh, well, to a certain extent, you're only as uh, good as your current wine. So, um, yes. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. So, what we're going to do today, because I, I figured we should actually share what goes on late at night when I'm cooking a meal and I decide to annoy the hell out of you with as many people as we possibly can because as I started drinking wine I stumbled across this whole magical thing where if we pair the wine with food and it's the right food suddenly the food tastes better the wine tastes better and it's all magic and this kind of led to me texting you at seven eight o'clock at night going hey Matt what pairs well with it could be whatever you know it's been everything from fish to barbecue to to pastas and things and you're a master of this. It's, it's not just <laughs> winemaking, but you're a master of, of pairing wine and food. So I guess the first question that I've got for you, so everyone can understand how you got to this level, how did you become so good at just understanding the flavors and, and how they all connect? Um, I suppose when I look back on it, a lot of it was subconscious. Um, my uh, father had a a German father and a Spanish grand a Spanish mother. So, and unfortunately, my grandfather passed away before I was born. And uh, so, my grandmother, the Spanish grandmother, moved to Australia shortly after. And because um, my mum and dad had migrated from the UK over here, and um, both mum and dad worked, and I spent a lot of time, like weekends and holidays, down with her. She lived at a Beautiful little house down uh, close to Glenelg Beach, next to Glenelg Beach, which is a little metropolitan beach in Adelaide, and uh, it was a very a lot of fun. And she was a brilliant cook and cooked twice a day, um, typically lunch and dinner, but always had bottles of sherry open, wine, and all sorts. So, I think this is a kid, even like a sub ten years old, is sitting there and just smelling and tasting stuff. Um, and I mean, I was weaned on olives and pate and all those kind of <laughs> field stuff. And uh, it's a hard life. 
Oh, hey, look, well, uh, mum made a lot as well. My grandmother was a brilliant cook and I spent so much time there and uh, obviously paleo and croquettas to the, this day. Um, the little the um, white sauce, deep fried little croquettas. Uh, I'm, whenever I go to a restaurant that's on the menu, I just try them because I know that it's going to be a hard task to match up to my uh, grandmother's. And I mean, she unfortunately passed away oh, 30 odd years ago. And um, hey, I still haven't mastered how to cook a croquetta because it's, just, <laughs> it's so good but uh no i think that's where it all started um love and food dad had a lovely cellar mum learned well she was already a very good cook anyway but then i think she learned from my her mother-in-law and it just evolved from there and um wow. here we are so uh and uh, i've always just loved it and when i was my brother and sister were quite a bit older than me so often when i was a bit older my grandmother passed away uh, i always was cooking stuff at home and diving into the freezer, what was in there, getting a protein out and just going through the cupboards and finding spices and stuff and veggies and whatever and just trying these. Sometimes, unfortunately, things were turfed into the bin. <laughs> and I, think you, I think you learn from your mistakes oh, as much as anything else. So. <laughs> yeah. No, no, absolutely. And look, I mean, this I've been looking forward to this episode to chat with you about this because, you know, you and I have talked a lot over the years. And one of the things that I learned from my dad who, who passed away about 13 years ago now uh, actually 14 this year, was life's too short for bad food and bad drink. And and yep. so, you, you know, if, you, if you're cooking yourself, you can really learn and, and do some amazing things with it. Um, on that note, we're going to be talking about, obviously, pairing wine and food. When we approach this, so we, we're cooking a meal where, you know, maybe we're being mad alchemist in the kitchen, we're coming up with something and, and mixing things together, as you say, going through the, the cupboards in the freezer, hey, there's a protein, there's some veggies and things like that. What are the basic principles that are sort of underlying that, that wine and food pairing? Like, what should we be thinking about to be able to go, you know what, I've got, say, red meat and I'm using onions and, and garlic here um, and I'm, I'm cooking that in... in you know, a frying pan, for example, or on a barbecue. Um, what what should I drink with that? You know, what what are the things that allow us to start thinking about? Hey, this is going to match with that. Um, I think uh, there's probably six things that I've sort of thought about when you asked me to come on this podcast. So over the last week or so, I put it together. There's six. First of all, I think you start with personal taste. Um. You think, well, uh, I've got a piece, I've got some chicken or some fish. And you think, well, um, I'm a big fan of tomato. So maybe I'll make uh, some kind of fish poached in tomato or make a part, chicken and pasta sort of thing. I think, okay, let's start from there. Just just the basics. If you're not super confident in the kitchen. So let's just start from that. Yep. And then uh, you can obviously start thinking about wines you like. So maybe your personal taste start there. But then, um, then you consider your intensity of the food going to cook so if you think if you're like oh my i do like chicken or tomato but i like curry and spice so let's make it let's make it turn it into a curry red curry chicken red chicken curry for example so you start layering it as such and going that way then you start thinking about what wine you want but again you've got to think about uh what balance you've got to get don't let one wine and all the food overpower each other you've got to sort of start thinking about oh, i like curry so but i also like riesling so oh okay that Straight away, you think, well, that's going to be a reasonably good pairing. But if you're a, a man, man or a woman who likes, say, big, bold Aussie Shiraz and you're doing a, a nice little poached fish dish in tomatoes, 
it may not. So you're going to have maybe it's going to be two ends of the spectrum. But then the, one of those things, though, those six, probably number four, is experimentation. So as yeah. I said before, some things unfortunately did get turfed into the bin. But <laughs> at the same time is, though, once you've tried that of experimentation, you can always add is a spice or something else, something a bit richer and fuller to make it. So maybe if you've got that fish with tomatoes and you want to think there's some bit of sweetness and um, you may put some capsicum in it or something, I don't know. Or you can add some seasoning. So that's probably the fifth thing and uh, sixth thing. So you start with consider intensity of uh, your personal taste, intensity of the food you've got and the wine you've got on hand. Um, look for balance, obviously, yep. between both both directions. Um, uh, experimentation, seasoning, and I think the sixth one I didn't mean six one. The last one is maybe if you are, this is what I was thinking. Uh, if you are cooking, say, a tomato-based pasta, you look in the cellar, you think, well, what is this go from region? So if you've got pasta from Italy, typically that kind of tomato-based pasta. Oh, I've got a nice. I like Sangiovese, and I've got quite a bit of it in the in the cellar. Go and grab a bottle of that. So. Rather than going, say, uh, let me think, let me think, say a bold yeah, curry and a big Shiraz, it might work, or a pasta with uh, um, a champagne, for example. I mean, it, it, you got to, right. it's just going to okay. clash. So, okay. all right, so, that, well, that, so we've, I've, I was going to say I have, but that's that's unfair because Sian has been doing some fantastic work from isolation. She's gone and and asked um, a, a number of like her cousin and and her sisters and that sort of thing for some questions for you around this because they they love their wines. And one of the questions that's come through is, and, and it ties into what you were just talking about, is is it true that what grows together goes together? For example, New Zealand Pinot and lamb or a German sausage and a Riesling kind of deal? It's to a certain extent. Um, it goes back to probably uh, the those the European agricultural, I suppose, culture. Um, if you go to many places in Italy, Spain, France, Portugal, etc., the little villages have got their, their local varieties of, of wine as such. And... Uh, Typically, the styles of wine they make are going to suit the climate they're in, and obviously the vegetables and foods that they typically would grow and eat are going to be typical for the climate as well. So if you, to a certain extent, so if you, say, were in uh, Spain, I mean, uh, Rioja, for example, which is down to the southern part, uh, mainly Tempranillo, up in high altitude, um, it is cooler up there, but you still have this generosity in the wines. Uh, when you say generosity, sort of what, what do you mean by uh, generosity in the wines? Oh, richness of flavour, probably, and, and structure. Yeah. Um, structure comes from flavour and things like tannins, which are those astring, astringent drying sensation. But also they have down that way, a lot of paella down in the sort of um, that uh, Catalonia sort of area, for example, and... Uh, so maybe, yeah, you're right. To a certain extent, that is held true because the locals would make wines to suit the style of food that they were able to grow and eat. And so typically if you were in, sorry, Australia is not Southern Australia, or no, so Central Australia, Alice Springs, I don't think you'd find a, a German-style restaurant <laughs> there because all those heavy, rich foods and stuff. So 
I mean, that's probably a bit being a bit facetious, but it's probably an extreme example. So yeah. you're yeah. right. To a certain extent, yes. But I think we're such a global um, environment now and where communication and travel and what have you is so an accessibility of foodstuffs and wines yeah. is yeah. pretty easy to get. So we can all mix it up. And that's where the experimentation side of my... Well, that's the good fun, isn't through. it? That's, that, that's the fun stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um yeah, that, and that's that's really interesting, actually, because you, you keep talking about Europe and, and going back to Europe, and I know a lot of your wines are European-inspired, but the grapes and the wines, of course, are grown and made in Australia. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Is that, um, is that from your I grandmother? Think, uh, yes and no. And I think also, I mean, I've, always, I've worked over there and enjoyed the wines over there, but I mean, obviously still make Shiraz and Cabernet, which is sort of the more traditional varieties originally from um, sort of uh, or Shiraz, sort of Europe slash Middle East. Yeah. Uh, Cabernet, obviously, Bordeaux is sort of the home as such, uh, which we call it. But um, I think over time, people's tastes change. And as yeah. we've seen probably globally, um, people's wine knowledge has increased drastically Yeah, in general. So their probably preferences have changed slightly. And I can see that in Australia, people are probably drinking more medium-bodied style wines at the moment, typically. Yep. Um, yep. I think the generation above us, or the baby boobers and above, um, still there's a percentage of those guys who like the, the old clarets and sort of style <laughs> wines. But, I mean, there's still plenty of people who drink that, but I think people's tastes and preferences are changing. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, the the wines you've introduced me to, of course, you know, my favourites are like the Grenache Carignan, which is more of that medium kind of uh, medium-bodied, yep sort of wine um on that you've you've worked around pretty much all over the world or, or you know have at least had experience pretty much all over the world and, and the core uh wine growing regions what is the most surprising food and wine pairing that you've come across um well not uh it was interesting you asked that i've actually got a couple of examples here and they actually happened here in australia oh really um oh yeah yeah um, oh, sorry, one of them was in Australia, one was in France. And uh, I used to do work with this um, lovely cheese, right, Loretta. She, um, we used to do various tastings together and go to do corporate events and what have you. And there was sort of cheese and wine masterclasses we used to do. And prior to the event, we would go, I'd go over to where her shop was and um, we'd taste say three or four cheeses and we say this is one oh no sorry we taste have about three or four wines and we thought we'll work out what kind of cheeses we're going to um, pair and sometimes you'd get you'd take two or three cheeses out you taste them against the cheese and you get it right pretty quickly but sometimes it would take six or seven or eight cheeses to actually get <laughs> something because people say oh you should drink white wine with this and so sort of softer cheeses and champagne with this and red wine with this kind of cheese it's it's a pretty general rule and you can get away with it my nine times out of ten but if you want to to grind down on the next level and it's amazing the contrast that you can because in in cheeses there's a lot of acid as well there's proteins in cheese and obviously the fat content and it can a wine that is say richer and fuller or oaky or not oaky or aromatic and acidic like a, a white like an aromatic white wine or some reds, um, uh, can be completely changing, both for the wine and the cheese, as we said wow. earlier. Wow. 
Wow. And I think the weirdest one I ever had, it was this, it was a, it was a sheep's and goat's cheese mix. It was a hard cheese, like a sort of Parmesan style. Right. And it was cryovac popped and it had these beautiful fruits that had been soaked in grappa, which was in the cheese as well, on the cheese in the, in his cryovac. And, and then you obviously cut it open and all the grappa sort of oozes over the cheese and the, and the fruits are very intense with this spirit. And it was our, oh, I can't remember which vintage it was, but we were trying some lighter reds and a couple of sort of medium-bodied whites, and they just weren't working at all. <laughs> and we thought, well, we'll just try this. We had this last red, and it was the S, which is our smitch, the, the, yep. the, sort of the icon, Barossa Valley Shiraz. And at the time, it was a particular vintage, and it was, I think it was probably 2014 or maybe 2015. It was a reasonably warm year, so the alcohol was a little bit higher, sort of up around sort of high 14s, and it had this sort of alcohol lift on the nose, which matched the grappa right. sort of spirit aromatics, and then it had enough acid and drive in the wine to cut through that um, sort of dry dry um, astringency that the sort of that Parmesan-style cheese has. And it was the most bizarre. So we used it in this masterclass, and everyone looked at it, and, and everyone was sort of really perplexed before yeah, they tried yeah. it. And then afterwards, it's like, Wow, that actually works. Yeah, wow. So no, no. we've got an alcoholic content grappa that is obviously, you know, sort of oozed all over the cheese, and then we've got a higher than normal alcohol content Barossa Shiraz, and we're combining the two. I hope no one drove home from that masterclass. Oh, no, no, it was a, it was a, <laughs> um, it was a, a masterclass before they had this sort of uh, wrap up party after this conference. Right, right. <laughs> they were all yep. having getting on the gas later on and. Yeah, but for anyone of the listeners out there, Grappa is uh, an Italian-inspired fortify, um, uh, distilled wine. So they literally get grape mark after they've fermented their wine, uh, reds and they take the skins, the grape mark, right. and then they distill it to get the last bit of alcohol out of it. So that's typically basically what Grappa is, which is wow. an Italian distilled product. So That's, um, and, yeah, wow. And the second pairing which was i've never forgotten i've done it a couple of times but originally it was in france it was this beautiful um i've used whiting over here and it's whiting or garfish and it's right so a light white meat yeah um but i've forgotten what fish it was over in uh in france i had but it had this beautiful blue cheese sauce so funny contrast in itself straight away right. and we were drinking okay. so turn with it so this uh, rich salty flavour of the blue cheese with this sort of fine sort of sweet meat of the fish and then this sweet intense apricotty richness of the sauterne with it and it just so you think oh, quickly, this is bizarre what's, what's, dessert wine with your main course so sauterne's a, a dessert wine is sorry yeah, it's a highly yep. sweet comes out of uh sauterne which is around near bordeaux to south of yep. bordeaux so uh literally there's this they have the not uh, there's there's botrytis, which is this mold you get on fruit, and yep. typically you see it when the weather's been wet and cold and miserable, and you usually get the bad sort of black mold. But if you get the noble rot, which is the, the botrytis you want, it just perfectly dehydrates the berries, and then you squeeze them so it concentrates all the flavour and the sugar in it, and then they literally over there they pick it berry by berry often. And it is um, pretty intense wine. So it's a, yeah. that was a bizarre contrast, having a, a very highly sweet 
dessert wine with your main course. Because, I mean, you're also, you've paired it with a blue cheese. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but blue cheese is generally sort of becomes the way that it is as a result of a mould process as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, commercially, they obviously inject it with the, yeah. inoculate it in the cheese and put it in the conditions in the, wherever it is in the cheesery and then the, Come back over a long way, a few weeks later, and uh, yeah, and away so. they go. And so it's just interesting that, of course, that that pairing worked, even though it wouldn't have made sense prior. But they've both got that common, yeah, not you, really common ancestor, but that common sort of almost chemical reaction at some point. Yeah, you don't typically get the mold character in the wine coming yeah. through. Um, because it's called the noble rock because it's just very clean, yeah, uh, mold, and so the way it grows it sucks all the moisture out of the berry and oh, wow. you typically when you press it you take the juice away as quickly as you can away yep. from the skin so of course. but you know i know you get it get but uh yeah just just interesting it's kind of got that commonality even even yeah, though yeah. like i mean obviously the blue cheese the mold flavor is impacting into the cheese and, and that's part of the, the appeal of it whereas it's not with the wine but just that there's that commonality of chemical reaction that occurs yes. at some point mm. in the in the process that's kind of cool um Makes me wonder if there's something there that maybe is imparting a flavour that that works together uh, in yeah, both yeah. of them, even though it's not necessarily the mould. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, yes. That's cool. All right. Uh, let's have a look at a couple other questions we've got here. Uh, I'm pretty confident that answer is going to blow Danielle away. Uh, Sian's asked from isolation: fattier meats like pork. What is the better type of wine to have with it? And what notes should you be seeking to get the most out of the pairing? Oh, gosh. Um, out of pork. Um, All that prep work, and we didn't even give you a list of questions. I just hit you on the fly. That's right. No, I think <laughs> I think of fattier and, and... And for first of all, do not uh, think that the old golden rule of white wines with white meat and red wines with red yeah. meat is steadfast these days because of experimentation what have you but obviously within my pork i reckon you could go uh uh probably quite versatile if it's just good old roast pork with some crackling yeah it would be uh a, a medium-bodied chardonnay not too oak with acidity or a riesling or an aromatic white like a yeah yep. probably a riesling oak because it's got i'd probably steer away from sauvignon blanc because it's got a quite a distinct that sort of uh, herbaceous character, which I think yep. might you know, steer away, if unless you're having salad, say, with the the pork, and then if it's a warm day and refreshing and stuff, that might be different. But if you're having, uh, if you're having like roast potatoes and maple sauce and bit of gravy and what have you, All I'd say stuff. say a Chardonnay, maybe, yeah, maybe a Riesling or go medium to light bodied red, so uh, something with good acidity, which will cut through that fat. Um, I think. If you're having a rich, dark gravy, you can maybe step it up to maybe a medium to full body Shiraz, maybe. So what are, what are some examples of some light to medium and some medium to full? Oh, maybe a, a Pinot Noir, for example. Yep. Um, and again, that is going to, Pinot Noirs can be sort of light to medium bodied and they can be intenser and more structured. So that's probably, uh, if you've got a producer that, you have in mind and their style of wine you find it is a bit lighter and I'm, i did a, a tasting the other day and there's a 
a, a brand called um, Repost, which is from Tim Napstein, who's got about 60, I think he just did a 61st vintage. And uh, again, that's a, a Pinot Noir that is from Adelaide Hills. Um, it's unoaked, so it's f- fermented, pressed off, put into stainless steel for six to nine months. I'm not sure exactly what the time frame is, but it retains that primary fruit character. It's fresh and lively, but good acidity yep. and vibrancy. So something like that aura. If you want to go down a path of, say, Italian rottles, you can probably Sangiovese or Dolcetto. They're usually a little bit more subtle. You guys did um, a Sangiovese rosé, didn't you, recently? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that was that was really popular in, in our household. In fact, I think I saw two bottles, and what I mean by that is I saw them and they disappeared. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they, they just did not survive. Like it, it was, and I mean, the, the amusing thing for me is your, uh, it was a Sangiovese, but it, your your label for it was it was the Smidge Wines Houdini label. So it was a Smidge Wines Houdini Sangiovese, uh, Sangiovese yeah. Rosé. And it literally did a Houdini where I saw it one minute and I've never seen it again. It was <laughs> did you actually have a glass of it at all? Or I didn't the... even get a glass. <laughs> I, I didn't get to, it. It just disappeared um, between okay. between Sienna's sisters, her mum, and and my cousin. It just gone. Vanished. It was oh, gone. Good. <laughs> and they loved it. They they really did love it. In fact, I know I know my cousin recommended it to a number of her friends as well. So I'm not sure if you've you've had a few purchases on the website, but she's uh, she's a huge fan and definitely recommended it. Oh, good. Oh, um, well, that's a no point looking at it. No, well, that's that's it, right? Like my, my, I think I've told you the story. My my dad died with his wine collection undrunk, you know, um, and that was that was the lesson, right? Life's too short. Um, yes. All right. Let me find. I've got actually. I've got a question here for Australian conditions. Australian conditions. Australian conditions, right? Yeah. Because of course, you're you're a Thank lot you. of your range. <laughs> no. No, <laughs> haven't you seen the ads? We're all bored of beer. We're over beer. Okay, that's that's why they're making all the crafts and they're making them a little bit more fruity. But no, it's seriously like your a lot of your wines are European inspired, Australian made, European inspired. Like your your Fianos, your um, Grunewaldliner. Um, I mean, you've you've got a fantastic story, of course, about the Grenache Carignan and, and the origin of those vines and so forth. But we're going into winter at the moment. But coming out of winter, going into summer, I'm hosting a barbecue. What kind of wines should I consider? What are you cooking? Just it'd be typical bar- Aussie barbecue? Let's, let's go typical Aussie barbecue. I'm going to throw some some steaks, some barbecue steaks on. I'm going to throw some snags. Um, you know, we're going to we're going to do some uh, onions on the grill, like or on the on the plate. Yep. Um, you know, people are going to be standing around and, and smashing it and chatting, and and we may even have a, a little bit of a fire pit happening. That that kind of thing. Okay. Ooh. Typically, when I have a steak and whatever on the barbecue, it'll be oh, something a bit fuller. So um, you maybe start with something like a oh, Fiano or a Chardonnay, if you wanted, and then uh, with your steaks and what have you, oh, you could go with uh, yeah, good old favourites, Aussie Shiraz, Cabernet. Oh, not probably not Cabernet. Cabernet more lamb for me. Um, but Shiraz, lamb. I like it. even to anybody, you got multiple Chiana. Try those, some of those, even some of the richer Italian style Sangioveses, yeah. the Chiantis. They sort of got a bit more weight to them. A lot of Australian ones. So I noticed you but, mentioned uh, there really quickly the Montepulciano. Yeah, again, it's sort of 
middle of the road. If you look at uh, the Italian red varietals on a scale, it's sort of a general scale. Yeah. Um, Italian reds are typically about the tannin profile, that sort of drying astringency, and the acid levels and everything else sort of in the periphery. So if you started... I mean, again, this is a general rule. Argument may be slightly different or of a different order, but if you start at the bottom of the scale, say Dolcetto and Barbera, for example, um, sort of the softer, juicier, fleshier sort of styles, generally, and then you move up through, you probably go into Sangiovese and Montepulciano, that sort of, yep, yep. And you go up through sort of Aglianico, and then right at the top of the food chain would be Nebbiolo, which obviously in Italy, the Barolos and the Barbarescos are made from. They're really uh to be honest though and then, then some of the producers have tried to make a more youthful approachable style but typically those wines need 10 years before you can drink it because they're so astringent and so tart that they need eight to ten years in the cellar before they really settle down and become very i mean they're always enjoyable when they're younger but i think you appreciate them more when they're a little bit older so yeah. that's yeah. a general rule so yeah Okay. So I mean, and Sangiovese, sort of in the middle of the food chain, if that makes sense. And if I can't find one of those, I like go the good old Aussie Shiraz. The Aussie Shiraz, and yeah, uh, look, you can't go wrong. I mean, I'll be, I mean, I could, we could pick out lots of other different varieties and play around with it. I think just a Aussie Shiraz barbecue. And, and you don't have to spend, it's the beauty of it. We are so blessed in Australia with oh. so much good food, so much good wine that, I mean, you can go down to your local. Go down to your local in try try independence, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Because uh, typically, typically they would have probably more knowledge, you'd hope, um, and they probably have a bit more interesting as well. So, yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. A couple more questions because I, I appreciate your time, and, and of course I don't want to hold you up too long. Um, right. What is a great wine to drink without food? Just a good drinkable variety. Probably. Oh gosh, you could goose sparkling wine, aromatic white wines, rosé, even sort of some medium-bodied whites and light reds. Yeah. Um, I think once you, it's one of those things. It is experimentation because sometimes if you have something and it's, we call it sometimes have white wines would have a mouth-watering acidity to them, and sometimes when your mouth starts watering, you want you crave food. So, yeah. And often those are like often the Rieslings, for example, like second Eden Valley Riesling may have some lovely mouth-watering acidity, and you want to just have yeah, just something, a little snack. It only might only be, uh, I don't know, a couple of little bits of a snack for something, but it might be a little bit of antipasta or a little bit of yeah, uh, yeah. seafood or something. But uh, yeah, something like that. If you're just sitting down reading a book. A nice glass of fizz, maybe. Yep. Then you can also go into things like sherry, for example, which is another kettle of fish. And that's actually a obviously a Spanish inspired, slightly fortified wine, which is wow. a completely different kettle of fish. But that's uh, See, another. The most tan. I know about sherry is is they age whiskey in it or, or age scotch in it, or rather, sorry, the <laughs> yes, barrels, the yeah. sherry barrels. They they then go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people's when you talk about sherry in Australia, they have this impression of that the flagons that grandma used to drink and they're these sort of nice sweet cream <laughs> sherry or something like that. But I think if you can think for me, I had a Spanish grandmother and a nice, I mean, I just love fino and you usually just, fino sherry is quite fresh and lively. You leave it in the, it's sort in the fridge and it is just, it's got this lovely little, there's a sort of slight, it's it's controlled oxidation and there's yeah. this thing called the floor yeast which is on the top which gives you a sort of creamy nuttiness to it as well and if you put it all together this sort of fresh fruit fresh um sort of apple notes 
nuts and it's just we're, like we're going to need to buy another wine fridge after Sian listens to this back. <laughs> like, we just it'll yeah. just be for sherry and and various other bits and pieces that we've mentioned. Um, on on that note, you kind of touched on it before, but it's it's not food related. But what's the best red range to start with if you're a, a dry white wine drinker? For a dry white wine drinker, um, probably the reds. This again. Some people might surprise, surprise, get surprised, and they'll try something bigger and bolder, and they'll do it. But I think you'd need to start something a bit on the sort of softer, medium sort of bodied style. Um, so maybe some lighter Pinot Noirs. Um, let's see some, yeah, some. Uh, what else have we got? Even some people we need some dirty words. Even some Grenache to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, Grenache what, is uh, a like Grenache Carignan. Yeah, for example, Grenache Carignan. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. which obviously we make, yep. but uh, Grenache is in it comes in different guises these days. Uh, both in South Australia, probably well, the majority of the Grenache is grown in other Barossa and McLaren Vale, and some of them are, are lighter, sort of medium bodied, spicy, sort of driven styles, and some of them are really extracted, bold, and rich. And um, so, other end of the spectrum. So, you just got to be again, if you go down to your local bottle shop, just ask the person behind the counter and say, I want. I want something sort of light to medium bodied. Yep. Here's a, I'm looking at this Grenache or looking at, want, I don't know, maybe a Merlot, for example, or a, 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 a Pinot Noir, for example. Those say three. Yeah. And then uh, hopefully they will uh, guide you in the right direction. You might be willing to buy a couple of bottles and give them a price range. And yeah. And, and, and don't try. feel like, and that's what I said before, that we are so blessed with wine, uh, food quality and wine quality in Australia that you don't have to go and spend. 40, 50, 60, 70 bucks to get a decent bottle of wine. You can spend yeah. 25, 30 bucks easily. Um, if not, sometimes if you get two for the two for 40 sort of thing, you know, sometimes and those wines. And again, people just again, I think one of my thing was about uh personal taste. Yep. Yep. With one of the six. I think personal taste does flow on into the into that wine as well. So if you like a brand that uh, makes this X variety X and you like it and you drink it and you're happy. Don't feel uh, compelled to go and buy something else. So, <laughs> and that's yeah. fair I mean, enough. Obviously, yeah. experimentation. If you're feeling feeling excited and want to do something like that, you can, obviously. But if you've got a safe zone, don't feel ashamed because... Uh, Think yeah, what you enjoy, you right? Like, that's, uh, there's no experimentation. point drinking that you don't like. And that's the beauty of when you go to restaurants these days. Often they have so many wines by the glass and often they do put things on that are a bit different. So in a lot of places... Um, do have the varying pours, like the, the whatever, the 40 mils, the 80 mils, the 120 mils, so uh, you can experiment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Matt, well, um, we're just about out of time, but I want to make sure everyone knows that they can they can connect with you. You actually have your own podcast as well, which is called Matt Decanted. Um, where can they go to, to listen to Matt Decanted? Where can they go to reach out to you? Where can they go to hit you up about the origin story for the Carignan vines in Australia, which is a fantastic story that I think they should all come and email you or, or reach out to you in some way and, and ask that. So where can they go to, to connect with Matt? Um, first and foremost is probably the website. There's obviously a contact us uh, email address, but then... Um, we're on uh, Net to Canada's on Instagram, on uh, on Facebook, <laughs> all <laughs> the social media platforms. Um, so yeah, either any whatever suits the listeners, the what is the best 
uh, platform that they use the most. Uh, there's usually access and a way of sending a message or an email or something, get in contact with Fantastic. us. Fantastic. And the podcast, um, is it on Spotify as well? Uh, I, uh, I'd have to check that one. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure that the, um, I have to check with that one. Not a worry. Not a worry. Uh, the website though is smidgewines.com. Uh, you can yes. jump on there and check that out. And of course you can access and, and, reach out to Matt through that. Uh, and I believe smidgewines.com will more than likely have links to where you can listen to the podcast, download the podcast, follow smidgewines on Facebook. Um, from my point of view, I just want to say, like, these are the guys that introduced me to enjoyable wine. Uh, I've never been a wine fan until I met Matt and and the crew at Smidge Wine. So jump on, check it out. Uh, give Matt a listen and a shout out. And Matt, thanks heaps for your time today, man. Thanks for coming in and just sharing this wisdom with us. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get you on again because I always enjoy chatting with you, man. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having us, John. No worries, and mate. We'll talk soon. talking soon. Cheers. I have no idea what that button was. The... Uh, the screen's lighting, right?